Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome to the first full interview of the Herd Quitter podcast. I am really looking forward to getting started uh, sharing some of these great conversations that we're going to be having with innovative ranchers. Uh, If you remember back to the last episode, if you listened to that, that was just an introduction podcast where we talked a little bit about what the podcast is going to be and and a little bit of a history on myself and an introduction to myself. But it's fitting that today for the first full interview podcast episode of the Herd Quitter podcast that our guest is none other than Kit Farrow. Kit is the man who coined the term Herd Quitter and is well known around the ranching business and industry for being an out-of-the-box thinker and rancher. Today we'll be talking about the history of Farrow Cattle Company, uh, what Farrow Cattle Company is, and getting a little bit of context on that Herd Quitter concept that we named this podcast after. So with that, we will get right into the interview. Kit, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thank you, Jared. I am really excited to get into a little bit of what you've been, what you've built over your your career in ranching. But before we get to where you are today, would you mind sharing with with me just a bit of your history and, and how you got to, to where you are? Yeah, I don't mind at all. I think uh, it's important to look back and see where you came from and why things happened the way they did. And I jokingly told you I was going to start back in 1929. Well, you you know I wasn't alive in 1929, but my dad was born in 1929. And dad was born as a city kid in Denver, was born and raised as a city kid, and uh, always wanted to be a cowboy. So he was able to get a small farm ranch in eastern Colorado uh, after, well, two years after I was born. And uh, that's kind of where we started. But I guess the, the reason I'm telling you this is that my dad is not a second, third, or fourth generation rancher or farmer. You know, he he came from the city. He see, he saw things differently. You know, he would ask questions that uh, typical ranchers would not ask. And he wouldn't accept, you know, just because that's the way it's always been done. That's, you know, he would ask questions. Why do we do that? So I think I inherited a lot of that from my dad. Uh, I do not accept the status quo in anything, whether it's religion, politics, business, ranching, whatever. You know, I, I want to prove, you know, what, what works, works, what doesn't work, doesn't work. And so that's, that's kind of the, the mindset that I came into this world with. And uh, so I was raised, I wasn't born here. I was raised on a small place that my dad had. He also had a job in town. He's a uh, range management person with the Soil Conservation Service at that time. And, uh, you know, that's where I started. Uh, Dad's visions, you know, he did not see his place being bigger than what he could handle. Therefore, you know, it, it wasn't possible for any of us kids to get a start with Dad. And uh, we, we kind of realized that. So I had been away you know, with college, with rodeo, uh, I had been away from rural America basically for, you know, 15 years before we came back to 
to this ranch that we're on now. And basically, I, I leased a large large chunk of grassland. I bought some commercial cows. Uh, a lot of those cows belonged to my dad at that time. And uh, that's where we started in 1985. And uh, really, you know, my, my goal at that time was to show everybody else how smart I was. <laughs> and uh, I didn't take a full year for me to realize, you know, this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Uh, prior to that, I'll back up a little bit. I had rodeoed and I worked at a feedlot in between rodeos. And in 1980, we opened up a retail store in Burlington, Colorado, and we sold wood stoves and solar systems. So I had a little bit of business background, and I, I'm a, I've always been a, afraid of failure and afraid of starving. So, you know, I we made that business work when everybody said it wasn't going to work. And that's basically what we had to do with the ranch. You know, we, I could see that this wasn't going to be easy. You know, my dad could make a living with 120 cows or fair living. And uh, that that's no longer possible. In 1985, it wasn't going to happen. So we had commercial cows. We, we, I had some good friends. My dad was still alive at that time. Uh, Chip Hines, uh, Don Palmer, Gary Rhodes. You know, I, I met with several of these guys back in the early days, and, and these guys were anti everything that the industry was doing at that time. You know, in the, in the 1980s, and you're not old enough to remember this, but <laughs> the, the only thing that was important was to get cattle bigger, faster. You know, that, that was a race, and uh, we knew how to do it. We had the, you know, we, we had the tools we needed. We, uh, EPDs were on the scene, and Chip Hines and my dad and a few others said, you know, this does not make sense. You know, making cattle bigger is not going to make them any more profitable. So I, I had a jump on, you know, because of the friends I had, we, we were able to say, you know, this does not make sense. Well, the only thing we really want to maximize is profit and enjoyment. You know, we don't want to maximize cow size because it doesn't matter how big your cattle are, how fast they grow, if they're not profitable. And I can see, you know, in, in the first few years that we were doing this, I did increase weaning weights. I did, you know, I did all the things that I thought I was supposed to do, and uh, I was not increasing profit. And uh, with the help of these other guys, I realized I was headed in the wrong direction just as fast as anybody else. So we, we backed up and we said, okay, we're, we're going, instead of focusing on increasing weaning weights, which is what everybody is has continued to do for for the for 50 years uh we were going to focus on increasing pounds and pro production per acre instead of per animal and uh that's still a novel concept it makes total sense to me it made total sense to me back at that time but most people still don't get it you know they're still the number one thing is to increase weaning weight and you can't get people to stop thinking about that until they go broke well, anyway, we I'm curious, actually, on that, because you're exactly right. I mean, that's still the main thought with people. But, you know, back then, there was nobody. I mean, there wasn't a, a Faro cattle company or, you know, all these other these people, Jim Garrish's and ranching for profit, teaching people to think a little bit differently. You were pretty much the only one you and your group of friends. What was it that actually, when you realized this isn't working, that kind of led you to think, you know, what, what do we do differently? That that's very, 
I mean, you were alone in that. And how did you come to the yeah. conclusion that it was is a different type of cow? Well, I, again, on my own, I don't think I ever would have seen it or held on to it. Uh, with, you know, with Chip's help primarily, uh, Chip Pines, you know, I was able to see things that uh, I couldn't see before and nobody else could see. But it, it makes total sense, you know, to focus on production per acre instead of production per cow. Uh, and, and that's, you know, we started out, you know, there's several things that kind of went into play there. But first thing that we realized is that, you know, management intensive grazing, rotational grazing is what we needed. Chip in 1988 had, had just started his rotational grazing system. And, you know, we could see how powerful a tool that was. And now we were increasing production and pounds per acre. Uh, we started ours in 1992. It took me a while to get up enough money to run some pipelines. So, so we've been doing some rotational grazing since 1992. The other thing that we realized that was important was uh, your, your production cycle, primarily weaning or calving, uh, calving and weaning, but mostly calving. Uh, it makes no sense to calve in the middle of the winter. There's no green grass, there's nothing there. Uh, in that same time period, we went to May, June calving or, or late April through May calving. It reduces your, your feed input, your labor input, uh, everything. So there, there's two, two of the, what I call keys to profitability is, is uh, managing manage grazing and uh, calving in sync with your forage resources or in sync with nature. The third thing is genetics, and it didn't take us very long to realize that every bull we were buying was taking us in the wrong direction because everybody was, there was a race. You know, every bull was bred and selected to go, you know, get as big as fast as they could and raise calves, the same thing. And you're right. I mean, nobody else was really thinking what we were thinking back then. That was kind of the third key. And I, I don't remember if I came up with this idea on my own or with help, but uh, we realized, you know, here's, here's a huge opportunity. You know, nobody else is even thinking about producing animals that will increase pounds per acre. They're too focused on weaning weights. Sure. And so we, we, we started right then, actually started selling some crossbred or composite bulls, uh, Again, back in the late 1980s, boy, that's when the grazing systems came in. People started doing rotational grazing. They still wanted to do some crossbreeding. So the, the marriage between rotational grazing and, and uh, crossbred or hybrid vigor came through composite bulls. And so we, we moved into that bandwagon. Uh, instead of having three different breeding pastures with three different breeds of bulls, we have one breeding pasture with a composite bull that's made up made up of three different breeds. And we started out with the composite bull that was uh, primarily Angus or Red Angus and Hereford and uh, a touch of uh, tear and taste for the continental breed. So that's, that's where we started. And as we were going along, you know, we realized, okay, there's more opportunities here. And we, we, we found some Red Angus cattle slowly but surely, but we were able to go, you know, go around and find a few Red Angus cows that we thought we could build our program on. Uh, we didn't start working on Black Angus until the mid-1990s, uh, just 
had not found the genetics that we thought we could use there. But anyway, we, we decided this was an opportunity. Somebody needed to produce the type of animals that were going to improve profits instead of improve bragging rights. I guarantee, you, you know, I started writing a newsletter, a one-page newsletter in 1994. And from that point forward, nearly everybody who knew anything about beef production thought I was an a, a absolute, I was dumber than a fence. <laughs> uh, you know, where is this guy coming from? You know, if he wants to raise antelopes, get a herd of antelope. Don't, don't try to turn <laughs> cows into antelope. But we stuck with it. Uh, I will say, and I think it's still important today, not near as much, but it was good that we had our little support group. We built our support group from uh, three guys up to maybe 10 or 15 guys that pretty much understood what we were doing. And we got together once a month, year round, you know, with with these guys, you know, they didn't let me back down. We knew what was right. We didn't back down, no matter what everybody else said about us. Sure. I, I found, uh, you know, this is kind of humorous now, but, you know, you could go to a sports sporting event back in the 1990s and there was nobody I could talk to about calving in sync with nature. I mean, nobody even thought about it. And that seems silly. You know, t- today it's a, it's a no brain uh, yeah. managing your acres to where you can run 50% to 200% more cows. That's a no brain, mm-hmm. but there's still people fighting it. And, uh, uh, you know, with smaller type cows, you know, that's, that's where we, we didn't know exactly where we were going to go to with our cow size and type. We probably started out in, in the night, late 1980s, early 90s with five frame animals. Uh, we're pretty sure we could make them do what we wanted to. And as we gradually, you know, we, you, you have to get about 15, 10 to 15, at least 10 years into your project before you know what works because now you've got some teenage cows that show you what works. You know, everything else that doesn't work has already fallen out. And what we found, you know, after 10 years is that these are smaller frame cows, you know, three, four, maybe up to five frame cows were the only ones that could last that long to be a teenage cow and breed back every year. And uh, from, from that point on, everything became fairly easy. It, you know, we knew we didn't have to make the same mistake. We didn't have to uh, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. So in 1991, we had our first bull sale. We sold six bulls. I believe every one of those bulls that year was a crossbred uh, or a composite bull. And uh, we grew from there, gradually grew. My newsletter started out going to 200 people. Within just a few years, we were sending it to over 1,000 and then 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 at the same time that people were, you know, what we were saying started to make sense to some people. Mm-hmm. And in 1994, I, I, they started asking me to speak at different events. And, you know, basically, I wasn't selling bulls. I was just selling the concept, the philosophies that made sense. And, and uh, like I said, nobody thought I was very smart for the first probably 20 years. Mm. And uh, the, the last 15 years have been much easier, but we, we, we've got to the point now where our program grew and grew and grew. Uh, we had to work with other ranchers and these the other ranchers, we call them cooperative herds or satellite herds. 
these were ranchers that totally understood what we were doing. They had been customers for many years. They were willing to join us in an effort to produce more bulls that made more sense. So, you know, we went from selling six bulls a year to the last several years, we've been selling over a uh, thousand bulls a year. Uh, we've got bull sales in uh, Colorado, two, two in Colorado every year, one in Texas, one in Missouri, one in Nebraska, uh, one in Alabama, and we will have one this year, actually, in uh, Montana. So, you, you know, it just, it just uh, continues to explode, and yet I suspect that we are still very small within the seed stock industry. As you grew and, and expanded both customer bases and cooperator herds across the country and, and even across the world, what did you see as far as your genetics adapting in different environments? I mean, my ranch here in Southeast Minnesota is high moisture, Northern high snowfall, totally different climate than what Eastern Colorado is, I'm sure. And as you began to see more and more ranches using this system that you were selling, like you say, you're not, you're selling more than just bulls. You're selling the system as they started implementing the system and these type of genetics within their own environments. What were you seeing? That's a good question. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we just, everything just works because it works. You know, I, what I found to answer your question is the right size and type of cow, you know, again, she's a smaller frame cow. She will not weigh less. I mean, most of our three-frame cows outweigh a lot of five-frame cows. So she's a, she's a power, powerful cow, a lot of thickness, a lot of muscle, extreme flushing ability. But when you take those types of cows in different environments, there's going to be some adaptation, but it really wasn't that hard. You know, we got to the drought of uh, 2002 and shipped cows off of three ranches here in Colorado. Uh, most of those cows, some went to Iowa, most of them went to Missouri, which is everybody, most people know is, you know, totally endified infected fescue. Mm-hmm. Well, most cows do not adapt to endified infected fescue. Most cows from eastern Colorado or Minnesota, anywhere, are not naturally adapted to it. But these cows, there's very little fallout. So we, we realized, okay, they work there. Uh, you know, we've got cooperative herds in, from the South Texas and uh, Alabama all the way to Minnesota, Montana, uh, the Dakotas, and they work. The same type of cow is going to work in all of those environments. Now, in the South, that, that cow's probably not going to weigh as much as they do in the North. I mean, that's just nature's way. You know, the deer in South Texas are not near as big as the deer in Montana. And the cows are going to be the same way. They they may be the same frame score, but the ones up north are going to be thicker because they need to have a more body mass compared to their surface area to maintain their heat. Now, in the south, they need to have more surface area compared to their body mass to get rid of heat. But uh, we, I guess we've been fortunate that our genetics have adapted so well in so many different environments. And kind of going back to where you talked a bit about starting off with a few cows that you thought you could build a program on. Can you tell me more about how you did build that program on those cows that you started with? Because there were no genetics you could go out and buy and, and quickly, you know, rapidly adjust your, your herd genetics to a, a low, a, a more low maintenance low type input. animal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, 
we started out and it, you know, just kind of imagine this, every cow standing up and she's got crutches or, or something holding her up. And we started pulling those crutches away. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, we, we, we learned how to graze our grass year round in many different environments. So now we're not feeding any hay, only in extreme cases where we have to feed hay. Uh, when we started calving in sync with nature, we stopped feeding a protein supplement. That's a crutch. Basically, we take away the wormers, the, the pesticides, the vaccines, uh, anything that was holding up a cow herd, we started removing them. And some of the cows just started falling down or falling out of the program. You know, we, we say, okay, this cow doesn't fit our environment. How do we know that? You know, the, the cows that cannot reproduce, get bred under my management, my new management, don't fit. Again, you know, it, it take, took about 10 years for us to say, okay, we're pretty confident where we're going here. The ones that are still standing, still in production, and they're 10, 12, 14, 15 years old, those are the kind of cows we want. Uh, we go look at their, you know, at that point, you study the phenotype, you study the, the EPDs, you know, that type of cow looks totally different than the type of cow nearly everybody else has in the industry. But you just pull away the crutches and, uh, you know, basically we have gotten to the point where most of our herds have not been, we've got, uh, I think, satellite herds in 12 or 13 states. I think it's 13 now, but uh, most of those herds have not been treated with any pesticides for two decades. When when you do that, you automatically have cows that are resistant to parasites, uh, worms, uh, flies, lice, whatever. You cannot produce a cow that's resistant to anything if you keep treating the problem uh, or treating the symptom of the problem. The problem is genetics. We, We pretty much got to the point where it's a salt mineral hay when necessary, when the ground's covered with snow, like you, you, you're going to have more of there than we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got snow on the ground right now. You know, as long as there's grass, those cows will graze through a little bit of snow and, and we let them. Somewhere along that line came this concept that you coined the original term of herd quitter. Uh, can you tell me where that came from and what it means to you and, and to Faro Cattle Company? Yeah, um, everything we did from the very beginning pretty much went against what the status quo industry was doing and saying. And it's ironic, but it's still that way today to a fairly great extent. Uh, Most universities are just now, you know, proving what we were saying 30 years ago. You know, that, that just kind of baffles me. But somewhere along the line in the early 2000s, you know, we were, I was thinking, okay, we're herd quitters. I mean, we left the herd and uh, we're doing something different. And I, I remember, you know, I don't know, I come up with these ideas, who knows where I wake up sometimes with them. And I shared that with uh, several of our people in our network and our, our pr- producers. And I remember almost to maybe with the exception of Chip Pines, everybody else has thought that's negative. You know, we don't want to be a herd quitter. You know, nobody wants to be a quitter, but I was able to push on and say, okay, let's, uh, I want you to consider this, you you know, quitting some things, you know, for example, I quit chewing tobacco back in 1993. That was a good thing. It's okay to be a quitter if you're doing the right thing. 
And if everybody else is doing the wrong, you know, doing something different and you're doing the right thing, that's okay. But I, I like to think of it this way. The reason all of our people did not like the term hurt quitter is because every one of us sometime have had a what we call a herd quitter cow. You know, we're gathering up the herd. Maybe we're going to wean the calves. Maybe we're going to uh, weigh the calves or whatever. But we're gathering up the herd, and nearly every herd is going to have this cow that's on the outside, and she knows something's up. She doesn't like this. She's got her calf right there beside her, and she just takes off at a dead run away from the herd. That's a herd quitter cow. Yeah. So, you, you know, you spend all your getting those cows gathered up would not be a problem if it wasn't for the one or two herd quitter cows. But when you think about it, you know, I've had those cows too, and, and they make you mad. But when you think about it, out of that herd of 200 cows or 300 cows, the only cow that's actually thinking for herself is that herd quitter cow. The other cows will follow the rest of the herd over a cliff if that's what's where they're headed. And, you know, that to me, that's a, that I, I have a high respect for herd quitter cow because she knows something up is up and she's not just going to follow the herd over the cliff. And so that's kind of where we are. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you have a little different concept of the herd quitter. No, uh, that's, that's really what I, I am happy you said that because it makes very clear kind of what the definition is. And, and that's what this podcast is really about is interviewing, you know, folks like you who like that cow aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things differently. And, and because of that, and this kind of goes along with what your guys's mission statement is, is they've enjoyed more fun and profit in their ranches and, and their businesses. And so I, I really think it's a, a great way to highlight what, what you did yeah. and, and what you think, what we believe ranchers should be doing is looking at things from their own Con- within their own context and their own perspective and, and not be afraid to do things differently than what the rest of the industry is right. doing. Yeah, let, let me give my definition of a herd quitter. And I do this in, in print. I do it at the, my pre- speaking present presentation. But my definition is someone who has enough courage to break away from the status quo herd mentality way of thinking. And it's more about, as you just said, it's more about thinking for yourself than anything else. Ranchers for the, or cattlemen don't like to think of, them, of themselves as being a part of a herd. They like to think, you know, that they're a, a John Wayne or a Matt Dillon or somebody that's a, you know, individual, individual, rustic individual. But I don't think there's an industry in the world that's any more herd bound than cattlemen. We don't like to think for ourselves. We're afraid to step out of the herd and think for ourselves. And therefore, we just, you know, we're still following the herd and still trying to increase weaning weights. Research, I think it came, uh, David Lawman at uh, Oklahoma uh, University there, they, they come up with a thought that, the, you know, weaning weights for the last, since 2001, weaning weights have really not increased a bit. I mean, we, we almost doubled winning weights in the 40 years before that, but or 30 years before that. But since then, winning weights haven't increased, and yet that's still the focus. We're still <clears throat> producing bigger and bigger cows, and those cows are, it's impossible for them to produce any bigger calves without throwing the, the cow herd in a feedlot. So, 
you know, the herd is still headed in the wrong direction. Sadly, there's very few ranchers that are even profitable nowadays. There's a lot of third, fourth, and fifth generation ranches that uh, were debt free for several decades, and now they're in debt, borrowing against their equity just to stay in business. And, and that's just that's, uh, not going to work. And I think for those reasons, you know, the following behind our program is growing exponentially because when your back's against the wall, you got to try something different. I'm curious. I, I was just listening to something this morning out doing tours that was talking about the difference. And, and I forget what year they said, but they said at this point in time, it was very common rule of thumb is that it costs a dollar per day to keep a cow. $365 a year and you can keep a cow for a year. Whereas today, now the average is somewhere between $900 and $1,000 per year to keep a cow. And so those expenses have continued to go up. But like you said, you know, weaning weights aren't going up anymore. The price per pound hasn't risen with the same rate of expenses. And maybe, you know, thinking back to where you started and maybe even when your dad started, can you share about what that difference between like why what worked then just doesn't work now? <laughs> yeah, that's a, you're challenging me a little bit, but that's exactly right. You know, 50 years ago, it was a different world. You know, let's just compare things from 50 years ago to today. You know, land could be purchased or leased for about one-tenth of what it costs today. Right right there is your biggest cow cost right there is in, in the land, whether you own it or don't own it. So, you know, and I remember 50 years ago in the 1970s, you know, a gallon of gasoline was 25 to 35 cents a gallon. Well, it's over $2 now. A brand new pickup in 1970 cost less than $5,000. You know, you don't get much for $50,000 now. Uh, labor in the 1970s, when I was working at the feedlot, I was getting a dollar or $2.25 an hour. Uh, when I left the feedlot, I was getting $2.50 an hour. And I don't think I was being underpaid. But you can't hire ranch hands for $2.50 an hour. I mean, it's going to be more like $20 an hour. So everything has increased to where, you know, back in the 1970s, what we're doing today, feeding cows, uh, not worried about our grazing, blah, 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 made sense. It no longer makes sense. And, and as I said, you know, a lot of ranches that were, were paid for and out of debt are now going back into debt. And that that saddens me. I mean, those are, these are family ranches that uh, should be very profitable today, but they're not but because they're focused on the wrong things. I, I've heard that in the last uh, either 40 or 50 years, the cost of inputs has, has increased five times faster than cattle prices. Now, during this same time period, cattle prices have increased, but not near to the point that it keeps up with uh, everything else that we have to pay for. And, and land's a big one, big one. You know, I, we talk about, uh, my last newsletter talks about the cost of land. Never has it been more important for us to increase production per acre than it is right now. And yet all of my neighbors, 90% of cow-calf producers continue to buy bulls that were bred and selected to increase pounds per cow which isn't working anymore. It stopped working 20 years ago, but they, we just can't get off of that train. Well, as we start to kind of point towards wrapping this up, 
Uh, is there any last thoughts you want to share? And, and we're going to have you on for many more conversations on a lot of topics that will be relevant to ranchers listening to this, but is there anything on kind of your, your story, what you've built and what, what your, your company is today that you'd like to share? I guess, uh, you know, I'm humbled by what, uh, what has taken place, you know, how much God has blessed what we've done. And, uh, you know, I, I know I can't take the credit for it. I, I will take the credit for being uh, stubborn enough that I was never going to quit. And I'm still not going to quit. You know, our, our mission, as you alluded to a little bit ago, is to help other ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You know, it doesn't have to be a hard way to make a living. But the average age of cow-calf producers in America is right at 60 years of age. It may be older than that. At 60 to 65 years of age, most people in most businesses are thinking about retirement. So that tells me that this industry is not very healthy. You know, the average age is retirement age. Mm. The reason the average age is retirement age is because the next generation is not interested in coming back. They, you know, they don't want to work that hard to make so little. But I'm here to tell you that it is possible when you change your focus from production per animal to production per acre. And when you just use the tools that are, have been there for at least 40 years, if not 50 years, it's not hard to make a very good living. It's not hard to build wealth. It's not hard to increase the size of your business. But you've got to stop doing what you've always been doing or what your family's always been doing. You know, what what grandpa or dad was doing 50 years ago, you can't do that now. You've got to change what you're doing. So I, you know, I, I'm excited about, uh, I'm still excited about where we are. I mean, we're, we're selling over a thousand bulls a year, several di- we develop these bulls on grass in several different states. You know, our Missouri bulls are born, bred, born, raised and developed in Missouri. Our Texas bulls are born and raised and developed in Texas. Nebraska is the same way, Montana is the same way. Uh, we're three years into our the same type of program in Australia. You, you know, it's a it's gratifying to see what we found out that worked several many years ago is still working, and we're really not changing anything. You know, mm-hmm. some people say, "Okay, what are you doing to improve where you are?" Basically, you know, we know what we want, and we're not going to go beyond that point. That's the problem that most ranches have is that the only way they think they're improving anything is to get more and more of something, you know, more weaning weight, more of this, more of that. The challenge is to get to an optimum level and keep it there. Well, a question I, I'm trying to ask everybody I talk to is, is if you were talking to somebody and you had to give them one recommendation, one or two resources, that can be a book or a conference or a podcast or anything that you would encourage them to look up or seek out what are one or two resources that you would direct our listeners to? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, you, you know, I, I think uh, years ago before I started a rotational grazing system, Chip had me read Alan Savory's book on holistic management or resource management. And uh, that book was hard for me to read. And uh, Chip says, just read it and then go back and study it if you need to. And uh, that's a, uh, that would be one, again, that I, I think uh, I would recommend spend some time reading it, 
don't try to figure it all out. It'll it'll come to you when you're ready. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in today's world that uh, you know I, I would trust for consulting. You know, we're very uh, Jim Garish with his American Grazing outfit is a is a is a good resource for us. So I you know I I, I guess I I don't want to get t- started too much down this line because. Yep. I'm going to forget somebody, but uh, nope, no problem. there are resources out there. I will say the one thing is that uh, you have to stay away from the status quo way of thinking. You just, you're not going to learn anything there. You've got to break free from that. That's probably the hardest thing to do. You know, we all get these free magazines and I get all the same free magazines. I look at them a whole lot different than my, my neighbors do, but uh, you, you, you're just going to have to find a, you know, resource that break away from the herd. You know, Stockman Grass Farmer is a publication out of Mississippi that, uh, you know, probably the only only publication that I would subscribe to right now. I mean, if it wasn't free, I probably wouldn't get it. So sorry, I can't I can't uh, give you a, a bigger, no. better list. And that's a really good point: is that it's probably almost as important as what what resources you avoid that the resource than the resources you actually seek out. So that that's a really good point, and those are some good resources too. And I'm hoping to compile a list for our listeners of kind of the recommendations and resources that people recommend. So thanks for the ones that you threw in there. If people want to reach out to you or, or learn more about what you're doing, uh, where would you direct them? Well, obviously to our website, pharaohcattle.com. Uh, uh, you can sign up there. We still send out weekly emails to, uh, I think it's 16,000 people right now. So, you know, most of what I'm talking about, have talked about today, I mean, we cover in more detail in these weekly emails. If anybody has any specific questions for me, I mean, they can email me at kit at favorocattle.com. But, you know, I, I, I encourage you to go to our website, read some of our past newsletters. There's a, we send out uh, quarterly newsletters, and there's probably four or five or six years worth of newsletters that you can go through. And uh, again, sign up for our weekly emails. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Kit, and all you shared with us. We look forward to having you on again soon. I, I look forward to that too. Thanks. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.